Some call me Steve, dad, husband or friend. Others might call me boss, coach or mentor. Today you can call me the leadership hacker. Thanks for listening in. I really appreciate it. My job as the leadership hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On today's show, we're joined by the founder of one of the best blogs on leadership in the world, teamworkandleadership.com, and best-selling author of two best-selling books, Michael G. Rogers. We'll get to talk to Michael shortly, but first, it's the Leadership Hacker News. It's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Now, that's a phrase that Star Trek fans would know all too well but it's something we can all now also associate with, given that COVID-19's pandemic has swept the planet. Depending on your worldview, some would say the reaction to the coronavirus is an overreaction. Others may say the end of the world is near. Now, whatever your worldview, the world and the businesses that we lead has changed forever. If ever there is a need for leadership, that time is now. So here's my top three hacks on how to lead through this crisis. Number one, stay steadfast and calm. I coined the phrase, the leadership barometer, and we all have one. This is where that metaphorical storm that we have to face in as leaders means that others look to us to see how we're reacting so they can judge and how also to react in those situations. It's our responsibility to project a sense of calmness and surety, and that falls very much in the leadership space. Leaders who serve others can help their teams remain focused and productive even in the face of uncertainty. And as a leader, they'll be watching you like a hawk to be true to yourself, to acknowledge their concerns and yours and help them assess the threats and emotions so that you can guide them logically to effective solutions. Number two, communication. In times of crisis, communicate like you've never communicated before. Gossip and rumour will spread like wildfire in your workplace especially in the absence of any official communication. So as soon as you know stuff, communicate it promptly and factually. And if you don't know, then say so. Because if you don't, you'll have another virus in your business and it'll be the communication virus on top of what you already have to deal with. As the myths and the legends start to form and misinformation will disseminate through your business and things will be tougher to deal with. Number three, keep the wheels turning. Do whatever it takes to engage your teams and keep them busy at this time. It's important to take advantage of technology like virtual meeting platforms like Zoom or WebEx or anything else that's a collaboration tool that will help keep your people connected when they're less connected and isolated. It could also be a time to pivot your proposition and innovate and try new ways of thinking and new emerging technologies. And crisis can also bring people together in adversity. So use this time well to forge deeper, more meaningful relationships with colleagues, friends and families. It's a perfect opportunity too to learn about your leadership style and how you've dealt with the situation, or not as the case may be. But one thing you do have to avoid, and that's doing nothing. It's now time for us to lead like never before. Intention's not enough. Action is what's required. 
And that's the Leadership Hacking News. If you have any emerging stories or news articles that you think will be useful to share on the show, please get in touch through our social media sites. Our very special guest today is Michael G. Rogers. His first book, You Are the Team, sold over 20,000 copies, and his new book, Do You Care to Lead, has just been published by Wiley. He's also an avid blogger. Michael, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. So I thought it'd be useful for our guest to know, Michael, that your career actually has been born as a very successful executive, having led some senior roles in Fortune 50 companies. So you come from a place of experience rather than theory, too. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up here. Yeah, sure. I, you know, I started off in the learning, well, actually, almost all my corporate career was in learning and performance, uh, corporate training, that area. And I quickly moved up into leadership positions there and took an interest in leadership. I had a particular leader that uh, was a, a strong, strong mentor to me, still is actually, and is is an inspiration behind some of the books that are the two books that I've, I've written. He's the one that got me interested in doing leadership workshops. Um, and, you know, being part of learning performance, I had that opportunity to, to do a little bit of that. And it really just got me super jazzed about leadership. And I started reading a lot. I started speaking more and more. I started doing some development with teams on the side while I was working. I started getting asked more and more to, to do deep dive kind of team development with, uh, senior leadership teams. And so I, I mean, it just, it just was a lot of fun for me. And I've been blogging for about, 13, 14 years, I believe now. And that was kind of a, a strong catalyst behind uh, the, the writing of the two books as well. So, Michael, what was it that really sparked that interest and desire in you to want to lead and help others? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, that that leader that I had talked about, um, his name is David Ferris. He just he was just such a strong mentor to me and he was like the perfect model of leadership and again it's so inspiring and the way that he led me the way that i watched him lead teams people were fiercely loyal to this guy and he's still they still love him even you know years years later and having the opportunity to have conversations with him about what made a great leader because of our relationship in terms of him mentoring me was really what sparked sparked a lot of it for me. And um, when I decided to leave corporate about three years ago and do something else, um, I've always known I wanted to write a book, but I, I, it wasn't something that was on my mind when I left corporate to try to do something else. I wanted to get in a different industry, do something around that. But I started writing the first book and uh, it was it it came out really well, and um, when I started promoting, it started selling really well. And I so I I said, let me give this uh, uh, I'll, I'll take this and do this full time. I'll go around and speak and and write, and I, I love it. I'm out of passionate, passionate about team development, leadership, and speaking and writing. I mean, I really, really, Steve, love what I do. <laughs> And Michael, in the time that we've got to know Jen, that's incredibly evident, that passion and energy just comes through uh, rapidly. And in the time that you started to write You Are the Team, what was it that caused you to have that team focus around leadership? Yeah, so I had been doing some team development on the side. I had read Patrick Lencioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And if any of your listeners out there have not read that book, it is a phenomenal, I mean, to me, it's, it's the Bible on teamwork. It just is right. really good, at least in terms of teamwork and relationships, which, 
you know, that's what teams are. I mean, fundamentally at their core, they're about relationships. And so he just does a phenomenal job in talking about relationships. But I decided to focus a little bit differently. The book, the book, You Are the Team is about relationships, but it's, but it's also about commitment and it's about stepping up and committing to the team. And so a lot of people ask me, well, why'd you, why'd you title it? You are the team, you know, Mike, there's no I in team. And I know that technically there's no I, but figuratively there is. And it always starts with you. So teams don't just magically come together because you want, you create a team and you say, okay, go out and conquer. You know, teams have to first commit and, and connect. And this book is based on six values of, of commitment and connection. And it's different. You know, I, I hadn't at the time seen any books out there that had focused just on teammates, the person. They felt there are a lot of books that focused on leaders and how to lead teams, but nobody was focusing just on the teammate. And so I, you know, I said, here's, there's an opportunity here. There's a little bit of a niche here. And I really feel that teams are only as successful as every person's commitment on the team and their own success to towards the team. You know, great teams are made up of great teammates. So that was really the the reason why I wrote the book. So Mike, how would you define team? In my work, I find myself often speaking to leaders who are in a team, in a board environment, but are also leading teams. So how do you square that activity through the team that you serve versus the team that you lead? Yeah, well, there's different types of teams, right? There's a lot of different types of teams. And I mean, uh, one of the one of the exercises I do quite often is I ask people to talk about the greatest team that they've ever belonged to. And, you know, that could be a, a family team. It could have been a team that you report into. It's a team that reports to you because even as a leader, you're still you still lead a team. You're still a teammate on that team to some degree. Uh, you know, there's volunteer teams, athletic teams, lots of different types of teams. And to me, the definition of a team is a group of people that come together for a common cause that want to do something extraordinary together. That's how I would define team. I mean, that's like how I define leadership. I mean, to me, leadership is only leadership when people just make a choice to follow you. If nobody wants to follow you, then then you fail to be a leader. And a team fails to be a team if they're not accomplishing extraordinary things. But every team has the potential to do that with the right, you know, the right ingredients. So what do you think it is then, Michael, that creates that connectivity, that emotional closeness that brings teams together? One of them, and and this is the same for leaders, Steve, is, is service. It's such a simple concept, but I don't think that we we, we think about it and we talk about it, but we really never act upon it. And I, I think there are so many opportunities around us. If we will f- have this mindset of putting others first to be selfless instead of being selfish, which I think a lot of us naturally, that's just kind of how we're wired is to be more about us. But when we're more about them, when we're more about others, when we're putting other people first, we begin to serve others. And I know of no other way to create con- faster way to create connection on teams than to have teams begin to serve each other. It's the same with leadership. I know of no other way, faster way to unlock your leadership than to serve the people that you lead and not just just doing your job, not just saying, hey, I have an open door policy. I'm going to meet with you once once a month or whatever. I, I'm talking about 
above and beyond. I'm talking about really thinking and putting others first because it is completely magical on teams and it's completely magical in leadership as well. That's, that's one big one in terms of connection. That's to me the fastest way you can create connection. Sure. And that also builds trust, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. Because a couple things happen when you serve. First of all, it shows that it shows that you care. And when people know you care, they're more likely to trust you. But when we spend time with people outside of what we normally do and, and service opportunities allow us to do that many times, we get to know people. And the more you get to know people, the more you trust people. So yeah, from both of those perspectives, you're, you're absolutely right. It does build trust. You know, and that trust is, that's, that's part of, that's part of the product of, of connection. Trust is, is yep. built through connection. So Michael, if I'm a team leader or a, a manager and I am struggling with consistent performance, so I've got a big differential performance in my team. So on the left-hand side, I've got my high performers. On the right-hand side over here, I've got the people who are just taking up space and I've got a bunch of people in the middle of the steady eddies. So how do you manage to pull that dichotomy together when coming to leading team performance? Yeah, so I love I love that question, Steve. Um, in my second book, Do You Care to Lead, I, I talk about five different classifications of employees, and I call them all stars. They're all stars because I think people, all people, have the potential to become great. But you, as a leader, you you need to act, and I think this is where a lot of leaders fail to act with their teams. Is is there? You've got to either people moving people up, over, or off. And the fourth fourth option is never a choice, which is to do nothing. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of leaders do. They just hope the problems will go away. But I really believe you should be spending 99% of your time or more on proactively nurturing people and trying to move them up. And so if you look at these five classifications of, of employees, um, I have... I have what I call rock stars and we all know what the rock stars are. These are the folks that just get it done. And then some, they're just amazing performers. We wish you had a whole team like them. They're innovative. They're creative. They're, they're, I mean, they just, they really are truly rock stars. And then you have your, your rising stars and your rising stars are rock stars. They just don't have the experience yet. And with the experience, they'll become rock stars, but they are rock stars in what they do. Currently, they just don't have the experience yet. And then you have what you refer to steady eddies, or I call um, steady stars or uh, middle stars. These are the folks that will meet expectations, but not necessarily exceed expectations. Then you have your falling stars, and we know what, who these people are. We wish they would just leave. And we kind of hope that some at some point they will. And so we just fail to act to move them up. And again, leadership is a nurturing process. And people on your team are watching you. They know who's moving up and who's not. <laughs> and so you're going to have trust issues on your team if you're not proactively nurturing people. So the, the fifth star is what we what I call uh, deceiving stars. And deceiving stars are falling stars in rock star clothing. In other words, they're bringing the morale of your team down. Everybody on your team uh, it struggles with these people. They're the people that hoard information. They don't collaborate. They take, they take the credit for, for everything. But you as a leader see them as a rock star. But until you do something with these folks, they'll continue to drag some of the morale down. And I, I have lots of stories I can share on that, that particular area. But 
your role as a leader and your team is watching you is to continually, and you owe this to your team to continually nurture. And like I said, 99% or more of your time is spent on finding ways to move these people up. If you can't move them up, then you may have to make the difficult decisions to move them over or move them off. And moving over doesn't mean that you take your problem and give it to somebody else. You make sure that you find the right seat or the right bus for them to be on. Um, and then, of course, moving them off is is really difficult. I mean, anytime you have to let somebody go fire somebody, that's that's a hard thing. But if you're doing it from a place of your heart, then it is the right thing for you. It's the right thing for that person. It's the right thing for the organization and your team. You're right. And as difficult as that might be. So your new book, Do You Care to Lead, uh, that we talked about earlier, is now available across the globe. You've created some really practical approaches and focus on the philosophy of care in how we'll transform performance and people. Tell us a little bit about that. I, I will. And, you know, I was thinking this morning, it's interesting you asked that question, because I was thinking this morning that really the two books are are linked in terms of the word care. I really feel if teams will practice what I call my six B's of being an effective teammate, they will care more about those on their team. And and caring is a is an important characteristic on on teams because as you talked about trust and connection I mean caring is a product of of that as well so but it so so it is but yeah in in the second book do you care to lead I, I come from a place of putting more caring into into leadership and if I ask any leader whether they care about their people they're gonna say yeah I I definitely care about my people I had a leader once that that if somebody had asked him if if he felt I cared about him, I'm pretty sure he would have said yes. But the reality is I didn't feel that way. And there was a recent Gallup survey done where four out of 10 people strongly agreed with the statement that no one at work, including their supervisor, cared about them. That means wow. six out of 10 people don't feel cared about, which is a startling number if you think about it. So where leaders feel like people know they care about them, People don't feel, you know, the majority of people don't feel like they're being cared about. And, I, and I'll go back to this leader that I had. You know, we would have regular one-on-ones. And I'm sure he thought by having those one-on-ones and by telling me that he was grooming me for his position and he was giving me some opportunities. He, he had put me in a new senior kind of role to expose me to more of the business to give me this, this opportunity. I'm sure he thought from his perspective that he was showing he cared. And, and to a degree, it, it, it just to a small degree, it did. But here's the thing. He never spent time nurturing me. He didn't develop me. He didn't spend time helping me understand what his expectations are, what my new role was. Here's your resources. Here's your tools. These are all things that show that, that you care, let alone the fact that when we did meet, he never asked me about me. He never asked me about my family. He never showed vulnerability, uh, himself. You know, I would ask him, for example, about his family, but he would never ask me about mine. <laughs> but when I asked him about his family, he never opened up. He never opened up about you know, mistakes that he had made or directions we had taken that we should have done differently. He didn't feel real human to me. And so all of those types of things I talk about in the book around, you know, do you care to lead, which is really about two questions. You know, first of all, do you want to lead? Because a lot of people are put in positions of leadership because they're just better technically or because they want to make their parents proud or their, their wife or their, their, 
husband proud or, or power or more money or whatever it might be. But do you really want to lead people? Because if you don't want to lead people, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to care about people. And that really is the, the main question around the book is, do you really, really, truly care about the people you lead? It makes an impact. It makes a difference on loyalty as, as well as results. Sure. And within your book, to help people come to grips with how to help people on that journey, you come up with five strategies. Serve, open up, nurture, inspire and commit. And I thought it'd be useful just to explore with our listeners a little bit about what lies behind each. Well, absolutely. And, and this is what I call to Steve, my sonic approach leadership. It's an acronym that just fits really nicely, truly propels <laughs> your leadership if you'll do these five things. <laughs> um, so, so service, I talked a little bit about that already. It is the quickest way to unlock your leadership. And there's lots of research that shows that when you serve others, there's, there's scientific things that are happening. You know, there's these great uh, chemicals in our body, neuro, neuro, uh, neurochemicals in our body that are throwing a party when we serve others. In fact, when not only when we serve others, but when we just watch others serving others or when we anticipate service or we think about the service, these neurochemicals start to get released in our body. They feel really good. And there is one of those neurochemicals is oxytocin, which is the same chemical that's released when a mother is feeding her baby. It's a connection chemical. And that's why when I talk about service and connection, the quickest way for us to connect with others is to serve others. That's what's happening. And so, and, and there's more I could go into around the magic and the science around it, because it starts with you as a leader and you and, and the cult creating a culture of of selfless service on your team and your organization starts with you as well. But it starts with you because of this, this connection chemical and the law of reciprocity in which people want to turn about and give back to you and the law of multiplicity, which, you know, says that if one person is served, not only do they want to recipro reciprocate that service to you, but they also want to serve up to three to nine more people. And so it just, there's a great story in the book that I, I tell about a CEO, an owner of a, a fairly, I think the business had become fairly large and she had made the choice to create a service program and it changed everything. It changed how people feel. It changed the morale of the organization. It changed how their customers looked at them um, and the referrals they started getting. They started getting bigger and better referrals from customers and clients because of, of just the way that they treated their, their clients, which came all from just this idea that this leader had around creating a culture of service. So it is just tr truly, absolutely magical in your leadership. So yeah, that's the first one, service. And that's amazing because it then becomes infectious. So not only are we triggering that neurotransmitter and those happy chemicals into uh, a delightful space, but it also becomes infectious for those people around us and it creates a self-perpetuation of that energy. So we end up with a double bubble of wins. Absolutely, yeah. That's a good, yeah, double bubble. I like that. I should have, I should have put that in the book. When you talk about opening up as leaders, is this about us showing some humility, some more of the human us? Yes. Yeah. Being vulnerable. Um, and really the, the concept is, um, uh, is something called psychological safety. And it really is kind of a hot term right now. Vulnerability is a hot term right now in leadership. A lot of people realize now as a leader, it's important for you to come across as human. But, but a big reason why that's important to open up is so that you can create the psychological safety. There's a, uh, there was a, uh, graduate researcher by the name of Amy Edmondson, I think, at Harvard University who had decided she 
want to study what made teams effective. So she, she studied a um, medical teams. And you would think that the medical teams that were most effective were the ones that had fewer errors. But she found out that it was actually the teams that made the most errors that were the most effective. And it wasn't that they made more errors. It's just that they acknowledged those errors more readily. And so as a result, she said this team had psychological safety. She's the one that coined it, psychological safety. People felt that they could talk openly about their mistakes. They could, they could, uh, learn from their mistakes quicker because they were talking about those mistakes and acknowledging those mistakes. But people only acknowledge and admit mistakes when they feel safe in doing so. A lot of people hide their mistakes. So creating psychological safety on teams is about is about creating an environment where people feel like they can raise their ideas, perspectives. They can disagree with people on the team. They feel like, again, they can humbly say, you know, I made a mistake or they can say, this is a wrong direction that we're going or, Hey, you're better at this than, than I am. And as a leader, that's your responsibility to build that on your teams. And I talk more extensively about that, that in the book, how you do that. Um, but it definitely starts with you as a leader. You, you want to be vulnerable yourself. Um, Sarah Blakely is the founder of the Spanx company. She's a wildly successful female entrepreneur, a billion dollar company. And she talks about when she was growing up. And this is so interesting. I, I love this. She, she said that when she was growing up, her father would ask them at the family at the, at the dinner table, what they had failed at that day. And if nobody could come up with something that they had failed at, he would seem almost disappointed. He wanted them to talk about their failures because he knew it was the quickest way for them to become successful. And at her company, Spanx, she created what she calls the oops moment, where they as a company talk about their mistakes openly as well and how they're learning from their mistakes. And she shared hers as well. Again, it starts with her. That's how the culture is created. You can't just say, as a leader, I want everybody to be open. I want everybody to, to tell us when you make a mistake, but you're not willing to admit your own. That doesn't fly because you haven't built the trust necessary. And there's some other things you need to put in place that, again, I talk about in the book. But but that's a main one is for you personally to be more vulnerable. So that's the O. And leading by example is where it starts. That whole psychological safety can so easily be eroded if people in responsibility and leaders don't practice that safety themselves, right? You're right. How would you describe nurture, Michael? Nurture is is the opportunity for you to realize that people are different. They have different needs. And you have to spend proactively time on moving people up over and off. And the fourth option, as I said before, is never an, op- never an option, which is to do nothing. Um, nurturing is about not being a cookie-cutter manager as well. Uh, I um, had a director that reported to me one time who was an absolute cookie cutter management. She, she loved performance management. I don't, performance management to me kind of has a bad connotation. I know I get it in a philosophy. I get it, um, in theory, how it should work. And I, I think it, it can work as long as you don't cookie cut it. She was really good at, at, at getting people. If they did A, they would do, 
you know, B would happen. If they did B, C would happen. And she didn't take into account individual people. She was really good at firing people. She did that quite a bit more than any other leader I knew. And we had a lot of conversations about this, trying to help her to think more about people personally. And it's, it's like if I took an avocado tree, for example, and planted that tree in the mountains of Utah, an avocado tree would not do well in the mountains. It would not thrive. It needs to be in the climate and the soil of Southern California, where I grew up. If I took an apple tree, and we have apple trees in my backyard here, I took an apple tree and planted it in the desert of Southern California, it wouldn't do very well there either. It wouldn't thrive. And that's because each tree needs different nurturing, different sunlight, different climates, different soil, different care. And people do as well. I mean, if you think a tree is complex, think about people. We need to be spending actively, proactively time with people and developing them. And again, moving them up over or off, never exercising that fourth option, which is to do nothing. We've got to proactively be nurturing people. I love that tree metaphor. Thanks for sharing that, Michael. So the I, when it comes to inspire, leaders will tell us, for sure, it's my responsibility to inspire and motivate my teams. Yet some people really struggle with that. What do you think the reason is that they do? I think many times it's because they forget about what I call the where, why, and how. The where is where are you taking people? So if I, if I have you, Steve, in a, in a rowboat in the middle of dense, heavy fog on a lake somewhere, and I'm telling you and the team to keep rowing, but you have no idea where you're going, but I just keep shouting, we got to keep rowing, guys. We got to keep rowing. You're saying, but where are we going? And you don't see land. You don't see any hint of where we're going. How long are you going to continue to row? You know, you're eventually going to lose your motivation to row. In fact, maybe half of the team will row and half won't, and you'll just keep going in circles. So letting people know clearly where you are taking them is the difference between teams that kind of flounder and teams that are wildly successful. They know where they're heading. Also important is to know the why. You know, why are we going there? Um, it doesn't matter if you do not know, if you are not clear on the why, people are going to have no desire to get up in the morning and try to go to the where. But if you can put that why in, it becomes more intrinsically motivating. People wake up and they want to come to work or they want to be a part of this team and succeed because you've been very clear on what that why is. And then there's the how. And the how is, you know, the strategic planning, the goal setting, all that other stuff. And one of the things we often forget about in goal setting or strategic planning is we do a really good job with an organization. We say, okay, here's our strategic plan. But have we have have I I like teams to consider how to create a strategic or having a strategic plan as well. And I call these success lines. So people have goals as a leader. You're helping them because you're nurturing them finding out what goals are best for them this year and having a success line, being able to clearly demonstrate in your team strategic plan and your goals and your individual goals, how they line up ultimately to the overall goal of the organization and, and success. How, what's the successful impact look like? And we have to talk more about that. You know, the achieving of a, the achievement of a goal itself, the completion of a goal is not the achievement of a goal. The achievement of a goal is the successful 
completion of a goal. And oftentimes we talk about the goal being completed, but we don't spend much time talking about the success behind what does the success look like for the goal? Because that's really ultimately what we should be measuring, not just the fact that we got, we checked it off. And so that where, why, and how, and I've got a number of other things I, I talk about in there, like celebration, recognition, rewards, um, upping your expectations of people. People will perform at the level that you expect and thanking people. I mean, these are telling stories. These are all ways that you can inspire. But first and foremost, foundationally, the where, why, and how, you've got to be clear on that as a leader. It's a really neat principle of the whole success lines. quite like that. It gives people the opportunity to visualize where they're going and how they're going to get there. And of course, for those people who are less visual, it gives them the context in that journey. So the things that they have to do, the activities, the wherewithal of their journey. And of course, if we don't have that, they start making up their own stories and fill in their own versions of events, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So the fifth one, C for commit, how does that underpin the other strategies? Yeah. So you as a leader have to be all in. And I think what happens a lot of times with leadership is, is it's like the shoemaker. Um, the shoemaker makes shoes for everybody else except himself. <laughs> and as a leader, I think oftentimes we're really good at giving others development opportunities, but we don't spend much time on our own. And you, I think, you know, it's, it's, important at the end of the book that I talk about your commitment to this process. And it's like the story of, um, and, and your IT listeners, audience out there, maybe have heard this story. Others probably haven't, but it's like the, the story of the pig and the chicken. They were walking down main street one morning and the chicken and pig had noticed a brand new restaurant that had opened up that was serving breakfast. And the chicken turned to the pig and said, we ought to open up a restaurant someday that serves breakfast. And the pig says, that's a great idea. What shall we serve? And the chicken says, ham and eggs, of course. Or the pig says, well, that's great, except you're just making a contribution. I'm making a full commitment. <laughs> and I, I like to tell leaders that I, I you have to be the ham and the ham and eggs. And, and I'm not talking about the fact that you have to give your life for it, but you do have to sacrifice a lot. You have to be all in. You have to be as, as the story goes with Cortez, you have to burn the ships. Your people have to know you are all in, you are committed, you are moving forward. And so if you don't have the commitment to these things, it becomes like any other book, any other workshop, any other opportunity. It just, it's just spray and pray, you know? Um, <laughs> a lot of times the books, they spray what they have to say and pray that you retain it. But until you commit, until you apply the things that you've learned, it ultimately does not become anything of value. It's just another book. It's just another concept. It's just another workshop. You've got to be fully committed. You have to be the ham and the ham and eggs. Uh, that's neat. And Michael, I just wanted to say, I think you are definitely the ham when it comes to helping people on their leadership journey. So we come to the part of the show where I'm going to hack into your mind, Michael, so that you can share your leadership ideas and tips with others. So where would you like to start? Yeah, so I will give you some specifics around three of the ones that I, I kind of talked about already. And the, the first one by far, I mean, to me, the most important one is to care about your people and really is the basis of, of what we've talked about, right? Because if you care about your people, they're going to care about their work. So they need to know you care. When people know you care, they tend to be more loyal to you. And as a result, they're going to want to do anything that you desire of them to do to 
to become phenomenal as, as an individual, as a team, as an organization. They're going to be willing to take what I call rocket rides with you, not subway rides. Subway rides are same place every single day. You can get from A to B, but you very rarely get from A to Z. But leaders who care about people take their people on rocket rides. They get to Z. They go to places they've never been. They're inspiring. They're not boring like subway rides. And so just really, truly show that you care about your people. Uh, the second is to be open. People want leaders now more than ever that are human. And we talked about this before, how openness leads to trust and creates, you know, lots of benefits to teams. But your ability to say, hey, you know what? Here's something that happened in my life that was difficult, that was challenging, is a, is a key to helping you feel like, or, or, or people to feel like you are more human. Um, so just sharing things, and I'm not asking you to share your deepest, darkest secrets, um, although if it's appropriate, you can. I've had leaders that have done that, that have had amazing results. Um, I actually share one story in the book like that about a leader who talked about an alcoholic father and opened up about that. And everybody knew who this guy was. They knew who his father was. And, but that openness did just create miracles on the team. So just be human, open up, be vulnerable. And then third is to nurture. And I've got a grid. If you go to doyoucareto.com, you can actually download a grid there that you can proactively classify people into those five star categories. And that to me is a big hack. You've got to be spending time proactively, either moving people up, over or off. And that tool is a great tool. It's a great hack, I believe anyways, for, for leaders to use. So in the spirit of opening up, Michael, this part of this show is called Hack to Attack. So this would be where something's not quite worked out as you'd planned or it went wrong, but you've now used that learning as a useful activity and a useful tool for your work and your life. So what's your hack to attack? So, yeah, so my um, my hack to attack and something that happened to me early on in my career, I won't give you a specific example, but I will demonstrate something that I learned from this in a way that I, again, it goes back to caring, which is my number one hack. But but a big failure that I had as a leader initially was that I was afraid of conflict. I, I didn't want to have the difficult conversations with people. And I know a lot of your listeners can probably relate to that. Uh, those are some of the most difficult things we do as a leader is to tell somebody that, you know, they need to, they need to improve or else. Yeah, but, but I, I learned early on that courage, courage is not the absence of fear, but it's carried about something more than what you fear. And what I learned, and I learned this from a, from an experience I had when my children were younger. So I have eight children, all, uh, I know that's a lot of children, one wife, we've been married 30 plus years, happily married 30 plus years. And, um, and I have a lot of experiences I can draw on, on that family. And this is one of them. Uh, I had um, my four-year-old daughter at the time, my two-year-old son, Kelly and Jeff, who were playing in our living room. We lived in a fairly small house at the time, so they weren't very far from us, but Jeff had fallen asleep on the couch. And Kelly, our four-year-old, had come in in a bit of a panic, telling us that he had fallen asleep. And she was really worried about that the fact that he was in the dark because they were afraid of the dark. And we, you know, as parents, just 
kind of brushed her off a little bit, unfortunately. And I'll, I'll tell you two different lessons I learned from this, but, but we kind of brushed her off and told her it was okay. Don't worry about it, Kelly. He's fine. You know, there's no such things as monsters. And, and she went on her way and she's, she was just really obedient. She's still like that today. She's just a good, good kid. And after a few minutes, my wife decided to go check on her. And as she did, she rounded the corner. She saw Kelly lying over her brother, protecting him from the things that she feared most. And what that, and she had these tears that were streaming down her eyes. And I, and I learned a couple of questions or a couple of things from that. One is that, you know, people, all of us have difficult moments and it doesn't matter if you're a four year old or a, a 30 year old, 40 year old, 80 year old. I mean, we all have our own challenges. We all have those things that we fear. And so empathy is really important. Um, and that's an important thing for all leaders, right? But the second thing I learned is, is, is what I quoted you before is that courage is not the absence of fear. It's about caring about something more than what you fear. And so as a leader, what I learned as I continue to grow and develop in my own leadership is that the more I cared about those that I lead, the less it became about me and the more it came about them and the more it came about became about them, the easier it was for me to do those difficult things. Still hard, but I was more willing to do it because just like Kelly, I cared more about them than I cared about the things that I feared. And it's a great story. And of course, proof that parents can learn from their kids too. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I've learned a lot of lessons, that many kids. And I'm sure many more stories to tell. So final thing I'd like to ask you, Michael, is if you were able to do a bit of time travel, go back and bump into your 21-year-old self, what would be the one bit of advice you would give Michael at 21? Yeah, so um, what I would do is I would definitely serve more. I would just, I would serve. I would be a lot more selfless. I would be less concerned about myself like I was at 21 than I, than I was about others. I need, I would be much more concerned with others and, and what they needed. I would be focused on being a servant. And, you know, this is, is something that we're learning more and more about in the leadership world, how to be an effective servant. I think we're far from practicing on a regular basis, but my 21 year old self leadership position, instead of, I would do less telling. I would do more, um, more serving. Uh, definitely. That's what I would do. <laughs> so if folks listening to this, Michael, wanted to get a little bit more closer to the work that you do at the moment, where would you like to send them? Yeah, thank you for, for asking, Steve. Um, you can go to my website, michaelgrogers.com, Michael G, as in Gary Glenn garthrogers.com, michaelgrogers.com. Uh, you can also go to my blog. I have a lot of content out there because like I said, I've been blogging for 13, 14 years, something like that. I've got multiple interesting ar- articles that might be of interest to your audience. And that's teamworkandleadership.com, teamworkandleadership.com. And uh, if you go to doyoucaretolead.com, I have some bonuses out there if you get the book that you might be interested in as well. Our leadership hackers love a bonus, so thanks for that. And Michael, it goes without saying, you have been a true servant to us today. It's been a delightful speaking with you. Super lessons and models for our listeners to take away with. Thanks for being on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Yeah, thank you, Steve. It was I was happy to be here, and it's it's been a lot of fun. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. 
Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker. Thank you.